Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. And so we're going to start in Psalm 7, 9 through 11. And if you're just joining us, we're in the series on the Apostles' Creed. Um, we're going to go ahead, while, as you're turning to Psalm 7, we'll go ahead and read the Apostles' Creed together, and uh, you'll see kind of where we're landing today. It says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So today, the hyperlink we're going to click on is that line, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is less about the return and more about the judgment. Because this seems to be one of the most difficult ideas to talk about as it relates to the story of Jesus. And, it's, and, it, and understandably so. So let's read Psalm 7. We're going to read verses 9 through 11 and then 17. It says, Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. Let's get down to verse 17. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, I've... The subject of hell and judgment can be very challenging. And I remember when I was about 10 years old, some people took me to a play that you can go YouTube today. Um, so I was 10 years old. It's called Glory in the Fire. And it is exactly how it sounds. It was crazy. My 10-year-old self was terrified. It was a play about final judgment and hell and, and Satan kind of wore this like skull mask and, and covered in dark cloak. And it was, it was just so intense. And like if you're trying to literally scare the hell out of somebody, it works. I mean, it, it works for a moment. So much of evangelism in our culture over the last several years had been, has been that sort of fear-based evangelism. You can maintain the, the, necess- the necessity of judgment and the reality of it without using it as the starting point. You can. 
In fact, I challenge you to go look at how Jesus interacts with those who are lost and then those who are found. His harsh words of judgment, as you'll find, mostly are pointed at those who think they're inside. It's fascinating. But that place scared me to death, but it painted a picture of hell that our culture has bought into that is more so shaped by medieval uh, arts and literature than actually the story that we find in Scripture. And so we're going we're to take a look at this. But anytime we mention this, the conversations automatically go into what you might call the temperature of hell. What is hell like and how long is it? You know, all, all of these different things. Here are some views that have emerged since the church's inception. I mean, all of these you can find in some way throughout the, the, the lifelong history of the church. Here's a few of them. The first one is what we will call kind of the traditionalists. The traditionalists. And I say that, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of that word, but basically this is the, what you find in contemporary evangelical um, circles often, is that hell is literal fire, it is eternal conscious punishment, um, and for those who don't know the Lord, that is their destined place, and for those who have not ever heard of the Lord, their chances are slim to none, because what is necessary is to hear the gospel and respond in faith. And so we need to be on mission to make sure that the ends of the earth hear um, the good news so that people don't perish. There's this drive and urgency behind this, this traditionalist view. And many of us grew up in churches where this kind of was like the thing. Um, you also have uh, what we call annihilationalist. And it's meant to be a softer version, but the term itself is pretty intense. Annihilationist. We're, we're softening it up a little bit. Um, and the idea here is basically that when, at the end of all things, when God returns to judge all things, those, who, are, those who, are, who do not follow Jesus and who live wickedly and put themselves at the center of all things or anything else besides God at the center of who they are, they will be separated from God. And now, the length of time, we don't know, but ultimately they believe that the person will just cease to be entirely. There's just no existence. They understand like the idea of eternal, dis eternal death as eternal cessation of life because that language does exist in Scripture, this idea of eternal death. And so there's some of that. Um, some famous folks that you probably have even heard of, uh, such as John Stott, held this view. He's known as the Protestant Pope. Like, that's what they call him. He had that much influence in the evangelical church, and that was his position. Then you have a universalist position that says, ultimately, one day, everyone's going to make it in. And this sounds nice until you realize you don't really have a choice in the matter anymore. Like, it's, it's more of a forceful view. It sounds soft, but when you get to the logic of it, it's more like fatalism. And so some folks like David Bentley Hart, you might have heard of him, hold that view. The next view is more of an inclusivist view that basically says, okay, for those who live, don't hear the name of the Lord, and they, and they die, there, there's, there's an opportunity after death to respond to the gospel. Um, you know, that, that, that's probably what it's going to be. And they'll have the opportunity to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Um, and then they'll either, be, they'll either choose it or not, and ensues either eternal life or eternal death. And this next one is an integrationist model, and uh, it understands basically that there's probably a hint of a little bit of redeemable qualities in each one, um, and, but that not, not all of these views are created equal, but there's probably some like, genuine merit we got to like, think through. And so you would find people like Billy Graham in this last category, surprisingly. Many people want to paint Billy Graham as, the, as someone who is just eternal fire brimstone, 
He may have grown up in that generation, but he departed significantly from many of those, of those ideas. In fact, he said his, his understanding of, he, of hell is that the language is metaphorical, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't make it any easier. You only use metaphors when there's not really language to describe the reality. And so his view is that it's not literal fire, but that it's more like an eternal thirst that is never quenched. And he sounds a lot like C.S. Lewis in certain ways. C.S. Lewis would fall into this category. And so I give, you the, I give you all of those just to show you, like, this is where people start. People want to know, again, kind of the temperature or the nature of this thing. This had, but to me, this seems to miss the thrust of what we find in the story of Scripture. These are important debates. In fact, you can go get two books. There's two different books called Four Views of Hell. And you can go explore how the church has thought through this. And some of you may resonate with one or the other, but interestingly, every single position, people use the interpretive, school, the interpretive skills and tools to arrive at their view. All of, all of these guys are using Scripture to try to justify their position. They all can't be right, but these are the things that we tend to go to. But it, it misses something important. It misses something important. When we isolate hell and judgment and just spend our time debating these things, we detach it from the wider story that we find in Scripture. And then we miss that judgment is actually good news for a withering world. We shouldn't isolate these doctrines and, because that's what creates a lot of the problem. When we detach it from the wider Scriptures and Jesus' teachings. Now, let me just be clear at the table and in Foursquare, there is room to debate some of this, the temperature of hell, if you will. There's some room. The nature of hell is subject to debate. Its reality is not. Its reality is not. You cannot read the pages of Scripture and, and, and say that there's not something total and final about God's dealing with all of the evil and injustice. And this makes us very uncomfortable. But here's the thing. The doctrine of hell and judgment is not supposed to be a sexy doctrine. It's not supposed to like go, ooh, I like this. And if it does, you're probably judgmental and need to hear it. This is meant to sort of provoke us a little bit, to think deeply about why things are the way they are in the world and what should be done about them. We live in this culture right now, in this post-everything world, where truth is totally subjective. You have your truth, I have my truth. But that's, that's how we function in practice, but in th but, or in theory, but everyone on the ground does not live like that. No one lives like that. Because the same culture that perpetuates your truth, my truth, is the same culture that is perpetuating the emphasis on human rights. The minute you say that there's such thing as a human rights, you were saying there is some standard by which we ought to judge all things. When you say this is wrong, that's wrong, then you're, you're asking for judgment in some way. We may disagree about what that judgment is and what justice is, but you can't deny that there's something within you that says there are things that are right and that are wrong and the things that are wrong need to be dealt with. And then typically somebody will respond, well, that's just cultural. You know, the West, America has their version of justice. The Middle East has theirs, but that doesn't compute either because we're also extremely concerned about women's rights in the Middle East. 
If it's just cultural, then why bother? It's not. There's something wired within us that aches for justice when there's injustice. And the minute you recognize that ache, you're asking for judgment. You're asking for judgment. We ache for it. Mark, Mark and I uh, were talking about this, here, this teaching today a couple days ago. He said, you know, the teaching on hell and judgment, it is not easy, but it is good. The good news is not always easy news. And so I hope that we can understand that with that. So we're just going to look at this in three ways real quick. Um, and we're going to hear more from Jesus' words than my own uh, today. We're going to read a significant amount of text here in a minute. But the first question is just this. What is the nature of Jesus' judgment? What is the nature of it? When we think about Jesus' judge, what comes to mind? One of my favorite passages is John 3, 17, 16 through 21. Let's look, take a look at this. It says, for God so what? Loved. Loved. For God loved the world in this way. God doesn't hate the world. God doesn't desire to extinguish the world. God loves the world. Okay. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not, there's something going to happen, <laughs> um, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The word save and the word life in John are virtually synonymous. When, you, when you're interpreting the gospel of John, life and salvation are always synonymous. Think about it that way. To save the world through them. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe already, now, here, now, in this moment, stand condemned because he has not believed in the name of the holy, uh, in the name of the one and only Son of God. This, this is the judgment. Where do I go to understand what God's judgment is about? This is God's judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by him. Oh, there's like deeds involved, but also faith. There's like this. It's a robust picture of God's judgment in Jesus. In fact, it was this text. I was teaching on John 2 one time, and a teenage girl was not paying attention to me in my youth group. And I know she wasn't paying attention because I saw her not paying attention to me. I thought she was on her phone. She was actually reading ahead in John. She didn't know Jesus. She read this section and afterwards came up and said, I want to follow Jesus. It was this text, not my sermon, which was kind of a letdown because I worked really hard on that sermon. <laughs> but still, this is the judgment. I love this passage because it shares the two sides of the coin, God's love and God's wrath, God's love, God's justice, God's love and God's judgment. They're two sides of the same coin. You really don't get one without the other at all. At all. Just think about it. If you have a dear friend, a family, and something is going awry in their life, perhaps somebody has done something to them, you, out of love, become wrathful. We don't always steward it the right way, but that, that, that's why it's there. It comes from love this idea that something wrong is happening. When, when people who deeply care about our environment 
see just trash thrown all over the place, there's a wrath that wells up within them. Because it's not how it ought to be. It flows from love. You don't get love without wrath. And if you have some kind of love without wrath, it's not really love. It's tolerance. And I like what it says. Jesus is the light. That's kind of the theme of this. And light does a couple of things. One, it exposes what's hidden, intentional or unintentional deeds. It's meant to expose. Shine the light on it. There you go. Intentional or unintentional. I didn't know that was wrong. Well, here's the light. Now you do. Or intentional. I've been doing some shady stuff behind the scenes, and now the spotlight's on it, and I really don't know what to do with it. It exposes. But it exposes not to condemn, but to save. So many times in the church, it feels like we expose things to condemn them rather than to expose them to give life. The second thing light does is it repels those who love the dark, according to the text. Dark signifies self-love over all else. That's what it is. It's, it's putting anything, particularly yourself, at the center of your universe and rejecting all other things. And it, and it leads you to situate other things in your life around anything else but Jesus. You have this passage in the, in the last section of Revelation where it talks about, where, where G, this is Jesus talking. He says, he, he gives a list of people who aren't inheriting the kingdom. And it's the, the idolater, the sexual immoral. And he goes on, goes, gives a list. And he said, those things will be outside of the city. And it says, they love the darkness. That means there was a deeper love for something else other than God. And that directs your life. If sex is at the center and sexuality is at the center of your life, it is going to lead you into that direction. It's not talking about those who are struggling with issues, struggling along. No, no, the, God, the gospel makes so much room for us who struggle. I get more concerned when there's not a struggle than when there is. I'd rather see people be wrestling with it, trying to deal with it, than just, I don't care. So that's another image of hell, by the way, in Revelation, is it seems to be something outside of the city. Hmm. That's a freebie. Go explore that on your own. The next one, life causes growth, or light causes growth in life. Wherever light is, there's the potential for life, goodness, beauty, and truth. And the idea is that when the light of God comes, it's meant to grow you. If you just leave something in darkness, it withers. That's what judgment is doing. It is bringing life, and for those who love darkness, it is bringing death. This is the judgment, it says. An old, an old uh, image from the early church basically took clay pots and metal, and it basically said the, the sun will do one of two things. It will melt the steel or it will harden the clay. It depends on the object on which the heat is bearing. And so, likewise, when God says, hey, I'm the potter, you're the clay, if we're, if we're allowing the light to come onto us, we're coming out of darkness into the light, he will fortify who we are in him, that we may be useful for God's purposes in this world. We become that useful pot for the potter. But the same light doesn't change. It will melt butter, or it will melt steel into butter. That was an image given to us from the early church, thinking through this. 
The point is that God's judgment is good news because it leads to life, goodness, beauty, and truth. Those who set their love on anything else will find themselves outside the city. And as C.S. Lewis says, and I think he's right, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. This is the desire they have. The next question, what is the standard by which we are judged? What is the standard? If that's the nature, what's the standard? Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore no condemnation for those in Christ. And John says that those who reject Jesus now, even now, are in a position of condemnation. It doesn't mean you can't move out of that position, but it means already you're experiencing the weight of it. The meaninglessness, the, the, the disruption, the constant ache for identity. You're experiencing the weight of being disconnected from the one who gives us our identity. And so that's part of it. But what does it mean to be in Christ? The Protestant church and evangelical church has made this obsession with belief as a cognitive reality detached totally from the practices that flow from that faith. The word faith and belief, it means something more like total commitment and in many places, total allegiance. There's this sort of willful loyalty about faith. It's not just, oh, I mentally believe that there is a God up there. No, that doesn't, that's not what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ means your life begins to reflect Christ. And total. It's a holistic sort of thing. What does this have to do with judgment? I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 10. This is not going to be on your screen because I think parables work best when they're heard. You can certainly move to Luke 10 if you want. If you're someone who really enjoys reading, uh, reading along, you can. But we're going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan and just make a brief observation. It says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Therefore, this is a parable about judgment. What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. Notice, Jesus is not lying here. You answered correctly. Do this, and you will live life, eternal life, life, eternal life, life, salvation. But he was wanting to justify himself, and he asked, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell in the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead on the side of the road. The priest, oh, an insider, okay. The priest happened to be going along down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, another insider, when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed on by on the other side. But a Samaritan, the outsider, on his journey came up, and when he saw the man, he had compassion and when he went over to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring out on olive oil and wine. Then he put on him, put, sorry, then he put him on his own animal and brought him into an inn and took care of him. A long-going care, apparently. The next day, he took two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever it is you spend. Now, which of these, Jesus said, Prove to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Well, the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. Jesus isn't trying to like bait and switch or trick him. He's saying, do, do this. But the problem is, 
is that the scribe's question is about eternal life, so therefore this is about judgment. But the, but, but the problem is that in the law, the neighbor meant the fellow Israelite. And the problem is confusing because he's watching Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, interact with all these tax collectors, all these sinners, all these people who don't deserve anything. In some cases, they have been marginalized, but in some cases, they've done some serious things wrong. But it doesn't matter. So he sees Jesus, this rabbi, interacting with all these people, and it provokes him. It provokes the scribe. He goes, uh, who's my neighbor? Because he's watching Jesus meet with everyone who should not be defined as a neighbor. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Now, this comes right after, right after Jesus is rejected in Samaria, the land of Samaritans. Now, what happened there? Jesus rejected by Samaria. James and John say, let's call fire down from heaven and burn them up. Let's judge them now. And Jesus goes, easy, pal. The inclination was to burn them up. But God so loved the world. This is what Jesus thinks. He's going to take the very people who just rejected him and kicked him out of the city and make them the hero in the story. Is your vision of judgment the same as Jesus's? This is the judgment. And the point is the standard by which we are judged is to love God with the entirety of our being and our neighbor as ourself. That's the standard. Paul says this whole law is summed up in loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so what do you, how do you do this, though? This isn't works-based righteousness. This is, well, you get in Christ. You put your faith in Jesus and watch this naturally work itself out. That's how you love God with you. You cannot love God with your whole being if you're rejecting Jesus. You get in Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean... Every time I share this parable, everyone's like, well, do I need to give the homeless men on the side of the street? Do I need to do this? We come up with all these things. That's not the point. The point is to provoke you to think about, does my faith work itself out in the everyday stuff of life? This Samaritan was not going down to the local nonprofit to do his time. He was on a journey on his everyday business and was willing to be interrupted, was willing to give sacrificially. Out of this something within him that had compassion, it's the same word that Jesus uses of himself over and over and over and over again. So with that, let's keep going. Matthew 25. 31 through 36, another parable on judgment, or another text on judgment. They're asking, what's going to happen when everything, when you return Jesus? And this is what Jesus has to say in Matthew 25, 31 through 36. He says, when the Son of Man comes with glory and all the angels with him, he will set on his glorious throne. All the peoples will be gathered before him, and he will separate them. From one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and then he, then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who were blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Whoa, 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 whoa. This sounds like works-based righteousness, Jesus. What are you doing? No, no, shouldn't I be inheriting eternal life just because I believed in you? Hold on. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when on earth did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty, give you a drink? And when, did we, when were you a stranger and we took you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? When? Then he will... And the king responds. I love it. it. says, the king responds. I love that. The king responds. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to the ones on his left, depart from me, you who were cursed. Enter into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing. I was a stranger. You didn't take me in. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was sick. And in prison, he didn't take care of me. Then they too will, will respond, Lord, when on earth did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger without clothes or sick and in prison and not help you? When? Then he answered, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of you, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Are you having a good time this morning at the table? We're diving in. This is important because we have a clear picture that Jesus is returning to judge all. Notice a couple of things. First, his throne comes with him. This is not a God who's going to extinguish earth. He gets it back. As one author says, he gets the hell out of earth. He gets the world back because he so loved, loved the world. He brings his throne with him according to the first part. He packs up the heavenly U-Haul and brings it with him. Now, he talks about the sheep and the goats. Now, in another text in Matthew 7, another text about judgment, he says there are such things as wolves. So you can be a wolf or a goat. Oftentimes we think because we're not wolves, we're okay, but you can be a wolf, or you can not have to be a wolf. You can also be a goat, and you're still not a sheep. The idea is that things are not always clear. Oftentimes you can't see a wolf in sheep's clothing. Oftentimes you can't see the goat because the personalities are so similar. Jesus can, though. That's why he says, you are my witnesses, not my judges. He says the wheat and tares will grow together, and he will sort them out. You know, I, I was talking to a couple of farmers in our church this week, because as you know, I do a lot of farming. <laughs> And I asked a couple of them, what's the difference between a sheep and a goat in your experience? And both of, them, both of them said virtually the same thing. Sheep are just more dependent. The goats are far more inclined towards aggression. They're stubborn. So in other words, they're highly opinionated, and they think they're always right. And I started thinking about the images. So the other one, wolf. Wolves tend to devour and scatter because they have power. There's some in the church that love power more than people. And some in the church that love their preferences more than people. May I introduce to you your wolves and your, and your goats. 
Obsessed with power. Got to make sure the church runs the way I want it to. Obsessed with preferences. If I don't get what I want, I'm leaving. There are times to leave. There are times to stay. Most times it's probably better to have a deep conversation and try to remain committed. I understand sometimes that's not a reality, but this is not talking about those circumstances. This is talking about the people who come in with agenda. I want you to notice the shock of both, the sheep and the goat. I call what the sheep are experiencing oblivious justice. They were totally oblivious to the things that they were doing. Why? Because it came natural to them. It was just a natural overflow of their lives to care about people. And then the goats, oblivious injustice. They didn't occupy themselves with the hurting, the broken, the needy. They showed up to a service, and that was the extent of their, their faith. They were oblivious to the injustice because it came natural for them. In both cases, they're oblivious. One is natural. One is naturally living out faith. The other one is naturally living out a pseudo-faith. One that says, I believe in you. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew, earlier in Matthew, There'll be some that say to me, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. These are people inside because they're not taking the commitment they have to Jesus seriously. It's a get out of jail free card. It's a give me a power play. It's something else other than just total commitment to wanting to see God move in people's lives, starting with us. Some people use this and go, see, but Cody, this is believers. This is brothers and sisters. Therefore, this is, you know, it's not supposed to be about the justice outside of the church. It's supposed to be about caring for one another inside the church. How do people outside of the church get in the church in the first place? Well, you can't read the passages of Scripture and say, oh, they were just caring about one another and that was it. You can't read church history and see that they were just kind of isolated doing their own thing. No, 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 no. It was through their intentional care for their communities and their presence that drew people in. And the Good Samaritan parable proves that argument wrong in the first place. And further, it makes my point that this is about the church. <laughs> and so for those who say, but it's not about the outsiders, it's about the insiders. Okay, well, you're an insider. Are you a goat or a sheep or a wolf? I see, I can't tell the difference between that and between a sheep and a goat. That's why Jesus is the judge and not us. Those who love God with their whole being in Christ naturally and nearly obliviously reflect the acts of Christ in everyday life. Find for me a Bible passage, a verse that says you are judged only by just cognitive belief in Jesus. You will only find, I promise you, this result of you will be judged by both your faith and your deeds. Because James says, faith without works is dead. This is not works-based righteousness. This is total commitment to Jesus. So what does this mean for us today? Last question. Worship team, you can go ahead and join me. I want you to notice 
that the Matthew 25 passage on judgment points right back to Luke 10. This has to do, if it's oblivious, it's happening in the everyday stuff of life. How you care for one another as spouses. Do you treat each other with dignity and respect? Or is there power dynamics that are unhealthy? It has to do with how you treat your coworkers who disagree with you on politics in the break room. The Samaritans did not agree with the Jewish politic by which Jesus in some ways held. How do you treat people who disagree with you? Here's the thing, we cannot expect people to treat us with kindness. It is our responsibility to put that out into the world. That's our responsibility. We don't get to go, well, they were mean to me. Yeah, I understand. But your role is to reflect the character of Christ in the everyday stuff of life. I hope a few things are clear about what it means for us today. Jesus will come and judge precisely because he loves this world. Precisely because of it. We believe that justice is the lens through which we see justice, truth, goodness, and beauty. Other people may see justice and everything else through a different lens. You might be wearing a political lens. Well, I believe that this is right because my talking head says this, and there seems to be a good argument there. My challenge is to always not throw away your politics. You've never heard me say politics is not important. It is. It's a tool. It's not a god. And put on the lens of Jesus. I get concerned when my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ can quote the, quote the Constitution from end to end, but cannot recall a word from the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever it is, Jesus is the starting point for justice, truth, goodness, and beauty. The scriptures are clear that a faith that saves implicates our whole being and the world around us in real ways. Real ways. A significant portion of Jesus' teaching is aimed at first those who think they are living in the kingdom when really they are living for other reasons in, in the faith. Now let me be clear. Jesus judges the living and the dead. That means he judges everyone in and outside of the church. But we're not the judges of those outside of the church. He will separate. He will take care of it. It's above my pay grade who gets in and gets out. It's above your pay grade. He sorts it out. And so I want to end with this. These parables, these teachings are not meant to undermine your security in Jesus. God is totally committed to you. Totally committed to you. It is not to make you feel like, oh, am I not saved then? I'm not trying to undermine your salvation. I'm trying to get you to evaluate it. And there's a difference. How, the question I'll leave you with is, is how does my faith work out in the everyday stuff of life? Do you love God with the entirety of your being? And you're, it's, it's gonna, you're gonna fail miserably. That's what grace is there for. God is not expecting you to be perfect. He's expecting you to put, put your faith to practice. The standard by which we judged is God's vision of justice revealed in the person of Jesus. And if you want 
to know God, then you know Jesus. And the consequence, the result, is that you'll have a faith that implicates the everyday stuff of life. This is the nature of God's judgment. There are a lot of unanswered questions. Shoot me an email. I'd love to chat with you. But I hope you find that the judgment of God is good news. Amen? Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing and sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.